0: Welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb. And on this podcast, we talk about consumer innovation and venture capital. Our guest today on this episode is Nick Moran. He's a general partner of Newstack Ventures. Newstack's mission is to invest in the outside. Nick is also the host of the Full Ratchet podcast, which is one of my inspirations actually for starting the Consumer VC. That was his introduction to venture capital when he started creating syndicates and now he has a fund. It's a really cool story that I'm excited to share. We discuss why he's bearish as well about Web3 short term, but bullish long term. How he thinks about deploying capital in today's market and the long term sustainability of the companies that he invests in. Without further ado, here's Nick. Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great, Mike. Always a pleasure. Awesome. Really appreciate you being here. So I would love to kind of learn the origin story of how you started Full Ratchet and then as well, New Stack Ventures.
1: Well, I left corporate America in 2012. Uh, I started angel investing on my own in 2013. I learned a bit about startup investing, doing that, and kind of the importance of building a network, building deal flow helping portfolio companies and uh, just had this discovery that nobody was doing audio right There was a lot of content online, a lot of people were blogging. There was a couple video blogs uh, but there was there were no audio resources out there. Um, so I started a podcast and shortly thereafter, you know a few other folks did too and I think it's really changed <laughs> it's changed uh, a lot of the environment you know There's a, a lot more interest in venture. there's a lot more early stage VCs, uh, angels, uh, even startup founders now than there than there were when I started. Uh, you know a fun fact is when I started the show in 2013 versus now there are more startups today. In the Midwest, or sorry, more unicorn startups today in the Midwest than there were when I started the show in the Bay Area back in 2013. So, in less than a decade, the Midwest has, has caught up and, and surpassed the Bay Area from a, the standpoint of, of unicorns. So, yeah, so that's a fun fact. I started the podcast and then Newstack came shortly thereafter. Newstack was started in 2015. We did 10 SPVs on the AngelList platform way back in the early days, you know, um, Naval, Tim Ferriss, Jason Calacanis, Gil Pencina, you know, just a handful of syndicates and then uh, that became a couple of funds a few years later
0: that's awesome why um I know one of the thesis towards new stack ventures is investing in companies outside Silicon Valley and I know that you were as you said you were based in Silicon Valley what made you move to Chicago leave the bay was it just opportunities that you were seeing or kind of wanted to explore and maybe be closer to the action with investing outside of Silicon Valley or like what what was kind of the rationale there
1: well, Chicago's home for myself and my wife. Okay, and we were not in the Bay Area; we were in Santa Barbara, so
0: oh, a bit okay, further okay,
1: south. Cool. And then went to Colorado for a couple of years, and and just kind of found our way back home. You know, when I got to Chicago and started startup investing, I realized the environment was quite different than it was in California. Not nearly as many investors, and terms were kind of uh, all over the place. Certainly not not just startup unfriendly, but I would say vc unfriendly you know there are ways that you can kind of screw a financing and a company up from the early stages by utilizing more private equity type structures so yeah got back to chicago and and sort of developed this thesis over time of investing in outsiders you know i would see folks that were not insiders they didn't come from Silicon Valley. They didn't work in big tech, and they didn't go to Ivy League schools, but they were just incredible, exceptional professionals in building category-defining companies, uh, just not on the coast. And so that's kind of where the thesis came from. Just finding more of those folks that were, you know, severely undervalued assets. So
0: what do you think? Obviously, we've seen like an explosion of as i mean as you mentioned um unicorns coming from the middle of the country between the coasts what do you still think is maybe a misconception about could be the midwest could be the south could be you know the rockies where are we at now how has it changed over the past few years since you started and what do you still see maybe as like a misconception from investors that are on the coasts
1: i think it's come a long way right like the the pandemic had many unfortunate outcomes. One fortunate outcome for the startup ecosystem and for venture capital is coastal investors started investing in middle of the country startups. And that's something we've been doing since the beginning. You know, In 2015, the first startup we led with Newstack Ventures was based in DC and we never met the founders in person. It was over, Zoom didn't exist, it was over Skype and traditional phone calls. And when the pandemic hit, all of a sudden, these Series A and Series B co-investors, you know, that would lead later rounds for our startups, became much more active in the middle of the country. So I had a lot of LPs that were calling me at the time, saying, "You know, is, has your edge been arbed away? You know, you guys were sort of the Zoom video based. You'll invest in Atlanta or Denver or Salt Lake City. Uh, is that going to go away?" And I think, in many ways, it's it's actually been an accelerant because the Series A and B folks no longer have to. Attend board meetings in person, and now they can connect with founders all over the country in a way that previously they couldn't, or or just wouldn't. And so it's it's been a great sort of amplifier to everything we're doing.
0: So are you saying on the Series A and B side of things, it's been an amplifier in they're more comfortable as the companies progress to that stage? Then it's almost an easier pitch for you to get those companies in front of Series A and B investors.
1: Hundred percent. There was probably. Less than ten VCs that I was very friendly with that would look at Midwest-based deals, even very strong deals. Like uh, Mike Evans is a good friend; we're invested in his recent company. He was the co-founder of Grubhub back in the day. You know, Grubhub their Series A was led by Bill Gurley at Benchmark. But that is one of very, very few examples of Chicago-based startups that were funded by coastal investors. Um, another one called Belly was funded by, by Andreessen, but you can name, you know, on one hand or two hands, the number of notable startups funded by notable VCs on the coast completely changed. Right? Our last Series A round, I think I reached out to 45 VCs on the coast and made 42 intros. So lots more interest in the middle of the country.
0: We had an investor on the show, albeit this was right before. COVID happened. I think I interviewed him February 2020. So I'd love to kind of back on and see what he what his thoughts are now. But he he had the line which I thought was interesting where if you want to start a technology company, it's fine to start it in a secondary or tertiary market, maybe outside the big coasts, what have you. But when you think about scale and you think about growing the company, you need to go where the talent is. And that tends to be You know, like the Bay Area with like software engineers and um, New York, maybe you put Chicago in that mix. But how do you think, especially when it comes to, you know, secondary and tertiary markets, when you think about growing and scaling, you know, technology companies, how do you think about placement? Obviously, things have changed because of COVID, but does placement now still matter? Or are you seeing as well that companies that really you need to get good at being distributed? And that's kind of like the new normal always.
1: It's a good question. It's a tough one to answer, but I can certainly give you know my two cents. We've got 40 portfolio companies now, so we've seen it quite a few times. It seems like Series B is kind of the turning point. So at that point, the company is sufficiently large in doing enough hiring that they need experience. So there's a distinction between talent and experience, right? Talent is everywhere, uh, but experience is not. And if you need tech-specific playbooks and experience, then often you can go to the the Bay Area and you can find more of that, right? If you're an SMB SaaS company with ACVs in the 15K to 20 range and you're running a product-led growth model, you can find people that have done that in more supply in the Bay Area than in any other region. It's not really about talent. It's more about experience. Um, But I've seen those hires go south more than they've gone north, quite frankly. And often it's because sometimes you'll find somebody who has a playbook or experience and they're very smart and they obviously have developed, you know, a strong set of best practices around, let's say, a marketing technique or a sales technique or, or maybe a tech stack. But everything changes, right? Tech is one of the most rapidly evolving places. So if you find somebody who has a mindset of always figuring out the right strategies right you're you're a consumer guy this is especially relevant when it comes to consumer customer acquisition right whether it's SEM or SEO or or now you know paid ads with with advertising or you're doing email marketing campaigns or other creative things the the ground is constantly shifting underneath you. If you make the mistake as a founder of hiring somebody who's got a playbook that worked five years ago, whether it be on the development side or on the sales and marketing side, that's different than finding somebody who has a mindset of trying to figure out what's the newest, latest, and greatest thing that we can do, or you know, come up with their own tactics and strategies uh, that are going to, you know, be innovative for the entire space.
0: Well, I think too, like you, you, you touch on a really. Good point about talent and about how you need. You're obviously looking for people that are pretty agile because, and not just have like a set playbook per se. Especially in the worlds of, you know, I know that you had your example of of digital marketing, but of course, things change so rapidly in um, digital marketing um, as you know one place and you know like another topic when it comes to hiring that we talk on the show too is you know. It might be great that a candidate is from, you know one of the big tech companies, you know, Facebook, Google, what have you. But what happens when they have a budget, you know, much smaller that they're given a budget a lot smaller than they do work at the big tech companies? How will they, you know, adjust? How will they survive um that sort and so I, I also just think too, like on like hiring talent side, it can be also tricky because on one hand, you want someone that obviously has that experience, right? and maybe knows how to do the job. But doing the job for a large company is very different than doing it for a small company.
1: 100%. Context is everything. There are builders and there are optimizers, and that exists within startups. It exists within venture capitalists as well. If you want to build your own firm, recognize less than 20% of your time is going to be investing. right? If you want to join an early stage startup, recognize you're going to be wearing a million hats and you're going to be innovating on a shoestring. Right. So that goes to your point. It's completely different than joining a large established venture capital firm or a large established tech company where you can go and you can optimize around something very specific and and try and um, you know move the needle in a much more focused way.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Also, like would love to kind of learn too. Obviously, you started off, you know, as you said, angel investing, then producing syndicates on on Angelist. Why did you decide to go the fund route? What was the reason there instead of, for example, you know? Joining another firm, for example, which then maybe you spend a lot more time on the deal flow side of things instead of you know kind of relationship managing with with LPs and what have you. But like, what was kind of like your mindset and how you wanted to progress per se?
1: I think it's like an evolution of pain points. I, I had Lanham Napier on the show some time ago. You should have him. He is a hoot from Bill Group, but he talked about how product market fit is constantly changing it's not something that's fixed in time so you find product market fit in one capacity and then it changes cuz the customer sets change and you know needs evolve you know once you fill one set of needs A whole new set of pain points evolves, right? And so same thing happened with us. We feel the need from the standpoint that we could now fund startups in more of a lead capacity at the time. You know, we could do six-figure checks instead of my little 25K or 50K check uh, with the syndicate. But then once we started cutting checks on the syndicate, the pain points evolved, right? The pain points for me personally and for my firm is I couldn't hire help cuz I had no management fees whereas if I had a blind pool a committed funds all of a sudden there's a fee stream you can put some services and you can put some people around it and then you can do much more across the firm and then the pain points of the founders mike so you know when we would cut checks checks via syndicate I'm talking to founders and I'm saying look We'd love to invest in your round. Uh, I think it's going to be somewhere between 150000 and 350000 I don't know for sure. And it's going to take us probably two to three weeks, maybe four, to kind of launch this thing on AngelList, you know, prep the materials. I might ask you to do a webinar, this and that. Some founders are great about all that, but some are going to kind of look at you and say, wait a minute, you can't really, you can't give me a firm yes or no. And you can't tell me how much it's going to be, and you can't tell me when I am going to get it. You know, that's a little—it's a little trickier, right? So it's not a knock on syndicates; it's, it's a different type of funding vehicle. But those are some pain points for the founders that are readily addressed with a fund.
0: Talk to me a little bit about how you are thinking about today's market. Obviously, it's pretty different to last year, but we've seen, you know, valuations obviously in many categories come down, bridge rounds, down rounds, and really kind of focusing a lot more on like capital efficiency in companies and you know, what's your burn, how much revenue you're making and kind of and kind of balancing out those two aspects. Talk to me a little bit about outside silicon valley. Like how has valuations changed what you're seeing in the market that you cover and also like was there already kind of an emphasis on capital efficiency with like companies that are outside Silicon Valley, or has it really been like across markets? Like, there's been you know quite a drastic valuation change.
1: Boy, there's a lot in that question to address. Um, <laughs> well, you know, first things first, we invest as you've suggested in a different profile of company than than the coastal counterparts. Our valuations are are lower in general because these are what we see as underpriced assets. Um, they don't have the bright, shiny resumes, but we think, you know, the talent, the mindset and the motor is just as strong, if not stronger than, than many of the counterparts. As far as the market goes, Mike, you know, I could cite all the cliches. Best companies are built during recessions. You know, be fearful when other are greedy. Fortunes are made in the down markets and collected in the up markets, right? Now is, a, is an exceptional time to be a VC. If you have a committed fund, you know, if you're going out and trying to raise capital, a little more challenging. Uh, If you have a committed fund and you're deploying capital, it's a wonderful time to be investing. I was on a call with some institutional LPs last week, and one of the more prominent LPs said he believes this vintage is going to be the best of the decade. Assets are underpriced right now. Terms are more favorable for VCs. It's a great time to, and you know, most of the talent, that's risk averse that's founding companies is going to go run to employment stability and a lot of the talent that is risk seeking is going to lean in and then the support talent in the system you know the people that will join startups the pricing is going to be lower and that talent is going to be there's going to be a higher supply uh, we've seen the opposite right over the past probably 3 to 4 years so there's never been a better time to be a VC And for us, when it comes to our existing portfolio, you talked a bit about this, but our existing portfolio is very strong, right? They're built in a different way than many coastal startups are built. When I talk to our our friends on the coast, you know, you do a lot of networking in this business, so you talk to 10 to 15 VCs a week, and uh, everyone's writing companies down, right? There's Panic is probably the appropriate word to use right now. We kind of use Polite euphemisms like triaging the portfolio and, and things of that nature. But there's a lot of narrative spin going on with VCs right now. There's a lot of panic. People are writing down companies significantly. Because what happens on the coast is when you've got a great idea, a fantastic team, fantastic resumes, right, and a killer pitch deck, you can, in some cases, go out and raise at $100 million valuation at seed, right, which is crazy, Right? That is what we call a hype round, which often turns into a moment, momentum round, meaning other people pile in. And then those are valuations that the startups need to grow into right? They're not there yet. It's going to take some time for them to grow in. Now that the market's collapsed, everyone's having to write those down and in some case recap the companies. But that is the antithesis of what we do at Newstack, right? We're investing in outsiders. So these com- the companies we're investing in need to show more traction and progress to get you know, a comparably low valuation. And so none of our startups have to be written down. I just wrote an update to our LPs. We don't have to write down any of our startups. We are not triaging the portfolio. Every valuation that they've raised at has been earned, not gifted. So we're in probably the strongest position we've ever been in as a firm.
0: I know that one sector or category that's really popular right now is Web3. And would love to kind of hear your thoughts if you're investing in Web3 businesses, what your general thesis is around Web3,
1: and if you're investing in it. We're not investing in Web3, Mike. <laughs> not at the moment. You know, Web3 just went through a massive hype cycle, which turned. Now might be a, a better time to be investing in Web3 uh, because, you know, prices have come down. I think Dan Primack just tweeted yesterday that BlockFi is in talks to sell for $25 million, um, to FTX. I mean, that crazy, right? Because BlockFi has raised over a billion in venture capital. If you read everything online, I don't, I don't think they'll sell for as low as 25, but orders and orders of magnitude less than even what they've raised in venture capital, forget where they're priced at. So, you know, Web3 has fallen on hard times, which may make it a good candidate for investment right now. We are still not investing in this space, Mike. Part of that is because of sophistication. If you're going to go after something brand new, whether it's a type of technology or, you know, a new category, you really have to develop some expertise around it. The second reason is, you know, the killer apps just really aren't there yet. A lot of Web3 is serving the pain points of venture capitalists. And I think that's why it's become this huge space. I can talk more about that. But VCs are super infatuated and enthralled with Web3 because it's serving more of their pain points. If you look at consumers, general consumers out there, it typically is not addressing real pain points for consumers, and that's why we've seen a dearth of killer applications. I mean, the one killer app that I think is working and can work well is Store of Value. I think, you know, crypto as a currency can be a much better store of value than gold, for instance. Outside of that, yes, there are some other applications on the fringes and there's exchanges and there's some liquidity benefits, but a lot of the promises that Web3 is making are not being delivered and customers aren't really asking for things to be addressed that Web3 is promising. So for us, it's not a category of interest at this time. We'll massive amounts of money be made in this segment, Mike? Yes. Will more money be lost? Oh, heck yes. There is a lot of money to be lost in this segment. And so we'll stick to what we know, stick to our knitting, B2B SaaS. It has comparable upside without the corresponding downside.
0: So how do you make sure that, because I know that right now you said you're not investing in Web3, but long-term it seems like you're you know quite bullish on on some of the applications within uh, Web three. How do you make sure when you're analyzing, you know, a particular category or a segment that, hey, like this is the hype cycle. I'm not going to invest, but at the same time, you also don't want to miss the the actual timing when it actually makes sense to actually to invest. So, how do you think about timing when you're actually analyzing different categories that you actually want to invest in?
1: Well, I think you know everyone needs to decide as a VC, depending on how mature you are as a firm or your fund structure, you need to have a thesis. You need And it's more important what you're not doing as a part of your thesis, even than what you are doing, right? You run a podcast, the Consumer VC, right? Are you going to go interview a bunch of enterprise, you know, deep tech founders? Probably not, is my assumption, because you've got your own niche and your own angle. And what that allows you to do is become at least from the interviews I've heard, heard a very effective and sharp and informed interviewer in a set of consumer-related categories and just venture in general, right? So you got to decide what you are and what you're not going to do. And uh, you got to be okay with missing on some things that are going to go well as long as you're pretty sure that the categories you invest in are also going to be outperformers. So do we think we can deliver a 10x fund This fund without Web3, 100%. That's why we're in business. We're not in business to be an also-rand. We're in business to be a top decile firm and to be the best, you know, between the coasts. And, uh, you know, we're convicted in that, and we believe we can drive that without chasing hype.
0: First of all, thanks for the kind word. That's certainly uh, certainly not true on 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 my side of oh, in um, the podcast. <laughs> but
1: I know that your
0: bread and butter is kind of B two B SaaS, right? But what in since it's obviously a a consumer show, what about consumer makes it interesting to you? Like what maybe categories um, within technology or or even consumer brands? What kind of has to go right in your mind when you're when you're looking at a consumer company that makes you want to make the bet?
1: You know, consumer is is a tricky category. I'm sure a lot of people have talked about this on the show. Um, You know, with, with B2B SaaS, you're still dealing with people fundamentally. And people operate on emotions and trust and things that are outside of just pragmatic logic. So yes, in the B2B SaaS world, you're always looking for either top line or bottom line optimization right? Can you expand revenue? Can you reduce cost and expand margin? With consumers, that's where you begin. But it's a longer sort of, in Chris Dixon's words, probably a longer idea maze to unravel, um, because there's more to it than that. Um, you, You may start with utility like solving a real problem for consumers, but you need to deliver it in a way that captures their imagination, right? It starts firing these different dopamine and and different hormones in a way that, you know, they're locked in and they're excited and they develop brand affiliation and affinity um, and all these factors. And so in my mind, it's the ultimate experiment in psychology. It can be a little scary sometimes because I think big tech companies don't really know why consumers make all the decisions they do, but they do have the data to substantiate what's happening. Um, And it's our jobs, you know, as being early stage sort of assessors of this market to try and get into consumers' heads to try and reason and intuit the way that they think and then deploy our capital behind it. Um, and hopefully we can use some data to substantiate that You know, with a lot of testing and a lot of iteration. So, yes, I think everything starts out with utility and usefulness, but consumer gets way more interesting because you get into all these higher level concepts of psychology and and my wife ha- happens to be a psychologist, and so you know she's been probably my biggest support in <laughs> building a business and also trying to invest in in the right people and businesses.
0: That's really interesting. And whenever I've spoken to other funds that are in, you know, uh, that certainly are in the middle of the country, or even funds that are on the coast and invest in the, middle of the country, what they really like about investing in companies that are located in, especially like secondary and tertiary markets, is that. It's probably a company that's going to be for much more geared towards, you know, a lot of different types of people, not just, you know, coastal, maybe like uh, types per se, but rather for the US. So like, and so I'm always just kind of kind of fascinated by by that part of it too, just just geographically. I know you briefly touched on it with analyzing founders and of course building trust. Since you were one of the OG's um remote investing people uh, that did it, you know, before COVID, any tips that you've seen in order to obviously build trust with founders when you're not able to Meet them in person if that's also part of how you invest as well, right? Like, you the the idea is maybe to, if they're obviously in town, sure, meet with them in person. But what are things that, that have you learned from remote investing?
1: Well, I don't want to escape your question, but I think whether you're remote investing or investing in town, I think you have a duty as a VC to be a friend and a support and be on call pretty much at any time. So, you know, I'll tell my founders if I'm not in a meeting or with my son and you call, you know, I'll always pick up the phone. And, uh, you know, we have an expectation of our founders. I mean, they need to have extraordinary mindset and motor, right? They have to have sort of very unique obsession and commitment to what they're working on and have that motor that high pace of repetition to get after it and when we hold our founders to that expectation we need to hold ourselves to the same Um, which is to say you know when when somebody's trying to close around and get wires and everything you better be on the horn with them you know as many times as is necessary and with your fund administrator to get that freaking thing done and get it in first you know before the other wires hit And when a founder needs something, you know, you better be the first callback they get, you know, with hopefully an answer or a resource. I think building trust comes with actions. Everyone in this industry has easy words. I'm sure you've heard many on your show because there's a lot of people that can spin a yarn and talk, Um, but a lot of people don't have follow through. If you've heard what I've heard about a certain percentage of my guests, you know, they don't necessarily act the same way in a board meeting as they do on a podcast. And so... You know, actions speak, uh, louder than words. And, uh, if you follow through with incredible actions with these people that are just extraordinarily committed to what they're working on, you become the person they're referring all their friends to. You become the person they want to work with. You know, when they're interviewed on a podcast and they're asked, you know, what do you think of investors? You know, well, shit, Newstack is awesome. You know, I mean, that's what you want them to say. And, uh, And you can achieve that very easily if you're sort of in a philosophical alignment with your founders, which typically we are because, you know, we we expect a certain type of founder to be a fit in our portfolio. And that's the way that we kind of operate as well. And it builds trust rapidly. I think if you're not in philosophical alignment, think about you know your thesis. Maybe you invest in consumer businesses based in LA that you know have um, strong digital marketing, customer acquisition, or something of that nature, right? Uh, you can invest in great companies in that space, but philosophically, you could invest in a bunch of founders that like maybe you just don't quite see eye to eye on. Or at the end of every call, you're not. Quite sure you understood everything they said or exactly you know what they're doing next or where they're going or how are they going to build pipeline? or you know there's there's something that's lost in communication. But when you have a a great philosophical fit with a founder, it's just you know, it's like an old friend. It's like you both know exactly who each other is from a professional standpoint, and you have an expectation of how they're going to operate.
0: Yeah, no, you you touched upon a good thread. I mean, of course, we talk about expectations, we talk about, as well as about thesis alignment. I think a subtle point that you brought up as well is can the founder kind of keep things simple in terms of how they actually express what they actually want to achieve and actually what, you know, what are the different kind of stages that they see for the company um, in the next, you know, what they want to choose to in six months or you know two years or, or what have you but can you say that in very simple terms where you, under, where you don't leave a call and you're like ooh like I don't really understand like there's so much jargon in there that I have no idea what we actually were talking about and can you kind of express you know the problem you're solving and and also your solution in, in quite simple terms that an investor can kind of wrap their head around it or just really honestly can anybody could could wrap their head around it so I think that's a that's a great point
1: a hundred percent and Mike I mean you take startup Submissions, yeah. right on your site, Man, he, and I know reads, that you know reads, you try and connect with the right folks, and maybe you're doing some of your own investing. So I'd, I'd be curious to hear, you know, what you see in these founders, and you know if you think philosophical alignment is important.
0: Yeah, I do. I certainly do think that that philosophical alignment is important. certainly important. I think really understanding, like, and, and picking through, like, what problem that that they're solving, and really trying to understand when I meet with founders, trying to understand. You know, on my end, like, is this really that big of a problem? Is it not? And trying to, you know, talk to customers or even just see like their communities that they've built since it's all consumer um, online, typically, that then kind of shows to me that, or it can give me kind of a feel if this is like a real problem or not. Because I think that, and we talk about this a lot on the show, but I think the one, the one part about consumer that I actually think we should take more of like an enterprise SaaS approach per se is that an enterprise SaaS is like, you know. Point blank, you're not the customer. It's an enterprise that, that's a customer. But in consumer, because we're all consumers, it's easy to say, like, oh, I wouldn't buy this. This is not going to be successful. Right. And we need to kind of take that approach where it's like, hey, like I am not like the target demo for you. And that's actually in some ways, I think, better because it actually allows you to be a lot more objective about the company if you're not rather than be subjective and be like, oh, I love this brand. I think it's great if it's for you. But hey, guess what? Like you might be one of the few people out there that it's actually for and that actually market may not be big. So, like, I think that actually one of the things that I've been kind of like um, saying is just if we could take more of like an enterprise ass approach where it's like accepting that like you are not the customer in a lot of, in, in many of the case is like, I think that would be great.
1: I mean, it's a great insight, right? Like, I think there's probably a benefit to doing some enterprise SaaS investing if you're a consumer investor because it kind of helps you ab- abstract your own experience from the consumer yeah, from the
0: market. Definitely. My final question to you, Nick, is what's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally?
1: Personal and professional kind of, there's not much separation in my life. Everything kind of is together, right? Like, I've, I've, I'm a founder more even more so than I'm an investor. And what that means is it's kind of all-consuming all, all consuming and has been for a long time. And fortunately, my, my family is very supportive and very helpful in, in everything I do. Um, I think a personal book that I really enjoyed, recently I read uh, Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. Uh, I think it's a great testament to resilience and a guy that was a self-described loser becoming the world's toughest man you know, or toughest guy. Uh, however you define that. It's just an incredible example of what mindset can do for the human spirit you know, in life. And if you really commit, you can achieve just about anything. A professional book that I thought was fantastic and very re- relevant for VCs is called, I think, Who is Michael Ovitz? I hear that he's now a VC and he's now investing in the space and investing in funds as well but he was the, uh, the founder and main agent for CAA. Fantastic book and so many parallels and so many lessons uh, if you're an investor in operating in this space.
0: No, oh, no, no. Love those. Love those. No, those are those are two great. We're really excited to add those to the book list. Nick, this was so much fun. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Mike, you're the best, man. Number one podcaster in the space. You deserve it. No, hardly, Nick. I've been such a full, <laughs> full ratchet fan. This is like such this is amazing. This is awesome, Mike. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate the time.
0: And there you have it. It was great chatting with Nick. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host Mike, on Twitter at MikeGelb, and also follow for episode announcements at consumer vc. Thanks for listening, everyone.